Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. Let's do some time travel. Let's look into the crystal ball of the camera of the future. So the camera is going to be a crystal ball? I like this already. Well, hey, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, you, you know how they sell those crystal balls for people to take pictures with? And it's yeah. like, that, that's like a one trick pony thing. And maybe if you do it once, it'll be interesting, but that's not, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's basically a big lens, but I think we can think a little bit more, uh, more creatively here than just that. Well, I'll tell you, in recent months, I've been looking at some of the AI stuff that we're getting in cameras. And let's put a link in the show notes to your popular photography columns where you're talking about AI. Yeah. And I'm thinking that we're on the cusp of a revolution in cameras. Because uh, let me give a simple example. I use, I've got a bunch of photo editing apps, like both of us. I have Pixelmator Pro, which has this, I don't remember what they call the super resolution, I think. So you can mm -hmm. take a picture, it can blow it up. And it uses AI and machine learning and the app is sentient and all that. And you can blow up a picture a lot and it doesn't look like it's blown up. And one place I use it is sometimes I have articles where I need to use icons, but they need to be bigger, right? This is articles about Apple stuff. Yeah. And instead of searching for the bigger iCloud icon or whatever, I just find the easiest one, drop it into Pixelmator Pro and use the super resolution and it looks fine. Oh, that's really interesting because I, I would actually wonder if something graphic like that, like like an icon, would work. And so that's, I mean, that even speaks more to the quality of of their tool because normally these super resolution uh, expander features are really tailored toward photographs, right? Because we're trying to take a small, low resolution photograph and bring it up. So that's actually like impresses me right off the bat. They are, but they're analyzing shapes and lines. And an icon, if it's one color against a white background, is probably easier to blow up than, say, a picture of Titus the Cat, which is one of the first things I did when Pixelmator Pro released this feature. And even the whiskers, which would be the hardest thing to blow up, looked really smooth. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so this is a really good uh, example of a technology that I think that I think we both think is going to. Uh, become more important because typically the circumstances when you would want to enlarge a photo that way is you either have something that's sort of older and low resolution or you have something that's a regular resolution but you want to print it really large you want to make a really large wall print or something like that and the problem of course is when you just enlarge something it tends to soften it because it's it's just making the pixels larger and then doing some algorithmic cleanup, but not a whole lot. And so what these AI tools are doing are looking at it more uh, more subject-y, if that's even a word. I mean, Well, are they, though? Are they aware that the cat is a cat or the sailboat's a sailboat? I think to some degree they are. I think they're finding lines, for instance, mm -hmm. and... Enlarging the line in a way that the line doesn't have jaggies. And I think it's all across the image that they're doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely doing doing some of that, but I I can't back this up, so maybe I shouldn't even say it. But I have a feeling that that I mean, if it's an AI tool anyway, maybe it knows, okay, this is a typical pattern for fur, and therefore this is a way to uh, you know, 
process fur separately than maybe you would process clouds. I might be reading too much into that. I'm just making this up. Yeah, that's possible. But see, for me, we're talking about the camera of the future. And what yeah. I'm thinking is imagine if an iPhone has its 12 megapixel sensor, but automatically blows it up to 24 megapixels when it shoots the picture. Yes. So it doesn't need to have more megapixels in the sensor. Yeah, actually, I, I think we were both headed right there because <laughs> this is absolutely something that with normal software is is computationally expensive. So you can't just go and have your image immediately blown up unless you have a really, really, really good computer. And even then, there's some processing time involved. And of course, to do that on an iPhone, you would need to expect immediate results, plus all the other stuff that the iPhone does, making it look good and blending images and all that. Well, gosh, there's some uh, dedicated image hardware there in the iPhone. And I think that could make that happen. And in fact, I would venture in the near future, maybe even this year, we might see something like that. Because DJI, which is a you know company that makes uh, drones, on their Mini 3 Pro, they're already doing that now. They're saying that, that it makes 40 megapixel images, but it's really a 12 or 13 megapixel sensor that's, that's doing this expansion. And that's just in a tiny little drone. Well, there's two ways to do that. One of them is pixel shift. Mm -hmm. And I think the first Sony GFX was 50 megapixels, but with the pixel shift, it could do 100 megapixels if you're on a tripod, right? Now, maybe that sort of uh, process has been um, improved so it can be done while it's moving. I don't know. Remember in the last episode, we were talking about Apple's new laptops and how the MacBook Pro has some hardware video encoding that the MacBook Air doesn't. And if they can put this encoding stuff in a chip rather than have it run through memory, it's much, much faster. So they could have a dedicated photography area on the uh, processor in the iPhone in the future. Oh, absolutely. I, that, I wouldn't doubt that in the slightest. And in fact, I think this is almost low-hanging fruit at this point, that, that, that they will do this. I think the question will be, will this just be an automatic feature? Or I suspect it'll be more like when they, when Apple introduced um, HDR or HDR Pro, what did they call it? Now I can't even remember the, the, the feature name. Basically, when they started blending images together to make a better version, that was an option. You had to go into preferences and turn it on or off. And then in the next revision, I want to say with maybe the iPhone 8 or the iPhone 10, they just built it in because they had improved the hardware enough that it could just do it by itself. And so my suspicion is maybe we have this sort of image scaling resolutionator, if I can make up words, um, and that would be something that you can turn on if you want. Obviously, it's going to take up more memory, uh, more sorry, more storage memory, and who knows what the results will be. Maybe they'll be a little bit soft, whatever, but maybe in the iPhone. 15 or 16, this will just be the default to get over that limitation of having small sensors. Um, I have to say that you didn't make up the word resolutionator, but my friend Rob Griffiths, who runs Many Trick Software, has an app called Resolutionator that can change the resolutionator of your Mac display. Yep. We'll put a link in the show notes because it's pretty cool. That's where I got it. Okay. There's something else interesting. Uh, Fujifilm just launched a new camera, the H2S. It can shoot in burst mode at 40 frames per second. and 
I was trying to find the table while you were talking and I can't find it. I saw it on a website that showed if you're doing it 40 uh, frames per second or d depending on the size and, and what you're doing. But what was really interesting, because when you're doing burst mode, you have two things going on. You have the speed of the shutter and then you have the amount of uh, buffer and of course the speed of your SD card. That means you can go for a certain number of shots. And I think at 40 frames per second, you can do 175 shots. But at 30 frames per second, you can do more than 1,000. Wow. Now think about that. If you're a sports photographer, and this is in JPEG, of course, and, and this is what this type of photographer needs to do because burst mode has to be fast. So mm -hmm. you're able to do 1,000 shots at 30 frames per second. Yeah. You can be following sports and just not miss a beat. Now, I feel sorry for the person who's got to review those photos in Lightroom and pick <laughs> the good ones because you know at 30 a second, that's the number of frames you get in normal video, right? Yeah. And so you're cutting it down to every single frame, but you're able to do that. Part of this is because it's using a stacked sensor. Now, I don't understand the technology, but it means you can do a lot more things. Yeah. A big part of this is is the sensor readout speed. Like how fast can the processor take the data that the sensor grabs, do something with it, and then push it off to the side into storage? If I understand correctly, a stacked sensor has two elements. The front one is the photosites that detects the photos, and the back one is the transistors that processes the light. So it's twice as fast because in current, in normal single layer sensors, the, the sensor is doing both of those operations, I think. I think, yeah. Maybe we'll find a link to that and yeah. people can read up for themselves and uh, <laughs> learn on their own. <laughs> but yeah, that sort of burst mode is really interesting. And you know the way live photos work on uh, an iPhone camera? Imagine if your camera is just constantly shooting and then you press the shutter button and it's still shooting. So, which is happening at the live photo for what, a second or two before and after. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you had more than that every time you're shooting and that you won't miss the photo or you won't get the photo where someone's blinking, you'll get the one just before. Yeah, I think some cameras do a version of that already. I want to say maybe the Nikon Z9 or maybe the Sony A1 have some modes that are like that where they're they're constantly or near constantly recording for people who really need that sort of yeah. that sort of performance. I, I could see that in wedding photos when you want to get just exactly right the positions of the people and who's blinking and who's not and you know, that sort of thing where that one little element can ruin the photo. Let's take a little sidestep to some really low hanging fruit. Uh speaking of the camera of the future, uh how long do we think we're gonna have shutters? Because already we have things like the, the Z9, which is an entirely electronic shutter. So having an actual shutter mechanism that, that you know, comes down and has you know, a, a, a mechanical mechanism, uh, I guess that's redundant mechanical mechanism. Anyway, but I'm going to say, let's say, you know, within maybe three or five years, you're not going to be able to buy a traditional camera that has an actual mechanical shutter. Well, the world's best-selling camera doesn't have a mechanical shutter. Well, this is true. This is true. Your Fuji <laughs> X100V has both an electronic and mechanical shutter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think most most uh, sort of traditional cameras all now have some sort of electronic shutter that, mode that you can you can do, which is it, it, it's quiet. It uh, you know gives you more of that performance, more per shot bursts. 
Um, well, an electronic shutter simply reads the sensor at a moment when you press the button. Yeah. So there's nothing that opens and closes. It just it's just a, an instruction to the camera to read the sensor. I there are, I think there are reasons to have normal shutters. You can't get those sun stars with an electronic shutter. No, I guess you can. You can cut yeah. that out. Okay. I think there are reasons to have mechanical shutters, although I can't think of what they are. <laughs> I mean, you know, I wonder how much of this is because there always have been, but maybe you don't. I mean, th- there have been times that I have shot in electronic shutter mode, and honestly, it, it feels a little weird because it doesn't have that satisfying click, click, click that I'm used to when I'm shooting. And so. But you can turn the sound on on your Fujifilm X100V, even for the electronic shutter. Yeah. And you can make it really quiet so only you hear it. Okay. Yeah, I suppose, but I don't know. Can I make it also go like? <laughs> no, you can't do that. That would be cool. So one thing I'm seeing that um, an electronic shutter has what's called rolling shutter distortion. And the examples you see of that are like a plane with a propeller and it looks all like it's bent like Salvador Dali painted the propeller. Yeah. Uh, I don't think a lot of us shoot a lot of photos where that's a problem. It's only when things are moving very fast. Well, it's that and and uh, camera motion. So if you're shooting and you're panning left or right, you can get a sort of a, a, a wobbly effect of the edges. Right. Uh, but again, that's something that faster readout speeds, uh, improved sensors tend to overcome that. And also, I mean, let's say you do have a sensor that is exhibiting that. Well, now there are software and hardware ways to compensate for it. I mean, you know, in our last episode when we were talking about the new iPhone camera features with iOS 16 and macOS Ventura, where it takes the wide angle when you're using it as a webcam and looks at your desktop and it's doing a lot of distortion and and correcting. Well, there's nothing other than processing power right now that says that you can't have software that analyzes your image, uses gyroscopic data from uh, as you're removing it, and corrects that rolling shutter effect in software. Maybe maybe not in the camera, but maybe afterwards. That's sure. that's data that can be manipulated. So yeah, that's an interesting idea. All right, so now I want to talk about lenses because. I've seen some, and I don't have any specific references or links, but I've seen some things talking about lenses that we may only need a single lens in the future, that it'll do all sorts of focal lengths and apertures and everything. That it's some kind, you know, if we talk about that um, desk view with the iPhone attached to a laptop and it's doing this voodoo to make it look like it's looking down, mm-hmm. lenses will be able to do the kinds of things um I don't think they'll replace everything. They won't replace a long lens that you shoot to use for birding, but they'll replace, I'm thinking, the wide angle to short telephoto. We should be able to get all of this with the same lens. Now, what was that camera the, a few years ago that claimed to do that? Lytro? Oh, the Lytro, which had like... Uh... 18 little lenses and getting things from different angles with parallax and all. And it was maybe ahead of its time, particularly because processing power wasn't there, but I could totally see something like that coming out in the future where you've just got one small, let's think the X100V, that kind of size, because the lens doesn't need to be very big, Mm -hmm. or maybe it does, maybe it needs to be a fisheye or whatever, but a single lens that lets you, after you've taken the photo, get the focal length that you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
in some respects, we can kind of do that now when we, uh, you know, take a wider shot and you crop in. Not a wider shot and you crop in. The actual effect of a telephoto versus a wide angle, mm. the parallax effect. So imagine that the right, lens right, right, is designed right. to get all of this information and create a bunch of slices for each of the focal lengths. And you can zoom in and zoom out in the software to get including that parallax effect. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's totally, totally doable. But I'm going to go one step further because there was an article in DP Review recently that talked about uh, Caltech has developed a possible lensless camera of the future. So no lens at all. The sensor itself does all of the light accumulation and doesn't need a lens. Again, we'll put a link in the show notes to this. But um, it, it sounds a little bit like that. Um, you know, it says like the system can switch from a fisheye to a telephoto lens instantaneously um, based on how like the, the sensor array receives the light. And so who knows, maybe we won't have lenses in the future. Well, there's still going to be some optical element, which is called a lens, right? Sure. In front of the sensor, the sensor is not going to be bare in front of it. But that would be also if it's able to shoot at all those different focal lengths, it just does them all when you press the shutter. Mm -hmm. And then you get to choose afterwards exactly what you want. Yeah. So I'm going to go one step further. Oh, okay. What about camera pills? You take a pill and it takes pictures through your eyes and then uploads them to your computer. Um, well, okay. <laughs> I can't think of mechanically or organically how that would happen. I mean, but... well, it, it grafts onto your nervous system to be able to get oh. the signals from your eyes and then bounce them over to your computer. No, I think we're not quite I'm slightly there yet, creeped but... out, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I can see that we're, there's a lot of progress in cameras. You know, we had the first digital era and it was kind of slow. And the reason is we didn't have the processing power. We didn't have the the quality of the sensors, the small enough uh, pixels to make large quantities of pixels. And now we've got the processing power. We've got more than processing. We've got 10 times the processing power we need in an iPhone. I'm thinking that camera companies or smartphone companies are going to come up with some really interesting ways to take pictures in the future that will make us totally rethink what photography is. Because if there's no shutter, if your focal length is dependent on editing software, that is a different concept of photography than our freezing a moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to, let me take you one step, not further, slightly back from where you were with the, the, the body cam. But a lot of the technological advances that we're seeing are in uh, smartphones because you have that, that physical limitation. Well, we're getting, you know, smaller sensors that can, can perform better. So why not have this on, say, a pair of glasses? Yeah, now that's creepy. I know, I know. So let, let the record be known that Kirk is, is making a weird face on that. But, um, you know, the, the ideal, I would say, is that how many times have you looked and you've seen something, you've seen an amazing sunset or you've seen something happen and you're like, oh, I wish I had my camera right then, or I wish I had you know, brought my camera up fast enough. And so then, you know, just speaking photographically, 
you know, what if you have a tiny camera that's in your glasses that is just recording all that? And so you know that no matter what you encountered today, if you make a note of, oh, I remember at 3.30, there was this great thing, and you go back through your footage, and there, there's the picture of the thing that you saw. Now, there's a whole bunch of different implications, privacy implications, uh, surveillance implications. I've read the book about what happens when we have that. Yeah. Everyone filming everything all the time. I think that's a problem. And I'll just bring up one more hurdle. You and I wear glasses, but not everyone wears glasses. So are they going to put on glasses just to film? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. I mean, you know, we have um, examples of this. Um, what was the Google, uh, Google Glass? Which, yes, glass you know, holes who would walk around glass with holes. the glasses yeah. filming people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's still uh, work on this technology being done you know, with AR glasses and VR glasses. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's not unheard of that there would be some sort of thing that, that could record and photographically grab those things. I honestly think it would be trivial, given the size of a, a camera lens on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you have to offload some of the hardware and you have to run a wire down into your pocket. Yeah. Um, I think it would be trivial. But the, the issues of privacy and surveillance, I think, bring this to a state where it won't really happen. Mm -hmm. um, imagine you know, there are countries where it is actually illegal to take street photography of people without their uh, approval. So imagine someone walking around with those glasses, taking pictures all the time. And this is all sorts of legal issues. And you don't want people with filming everything. I mean, I live in a country where they've got surveillance cameras everywhere, not in my village, um, but in towns and cities, they have more surveillance cameras per capita, I think, mm -hmm. than any country. And it's not, it's not the kind of society I want to live in. I mean, I'll move to Iceland if they bring out glasses like that. And let's hope the Icelanders don't buy the glasses. But <laughs> I understand your point. So imagine you're out on a hike and you want to be able to record what you're seeing. And that's entirely possible in that situation when you're not around a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, this also brings up other questions of just dealing with that flood of data. So, okay, let's say we can record all of our moments and pick out the right slice. That's a whole lot of moments. So how would you go about sorting through that? How would you, you know, mark that in the moment maybe, or you're going back and, you know, after you go on vacation. Hey, Siri, save this photo. Yeah, exactly. But, but even by then, like in the, the, what, half second that you said that, like a whole bunch of shots have already been Well, been Siri taken. would know that there's a delay, right? So... Siri would save yeah. a, a range of photos over a few seconds, okay, let's say yeah. five seconds, yeah. yeah, right? Or you'd have a command um, to tell Siri to save a photo now mm -hmm. after you say it, or the one that just happened, save yeah. this previous photo, save this next photo, something like that. It would probably be like like live photos now. You would you'd get right. a burst, right? Yeah. Right. But as you say, how do you deal with all that data afterwards? You'd have to have a sentient AI to go through them and to find the ones that look good where it's even, where there's no blur, where people aren't blinking, et cetera, et cetera, which is entirely possible. Yeah. This is all kind of spooky, though, when you think about it. It is. It is all kind of spooky. Okay. Here's something that, that uh, may not be as spooky. And actually, this is something that you mentioned in a podcast at one point. And 
I think it was almost a throwaway line, but you it, it keeps coming back to me when you said, well, weddings are just going to have drones. So you'll have little little drones uh, at the wedding. And because my brain is probably more traditional than it should be, especially as someone who writes and talks about technology, uh, I was like, no, 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 because drones, like even the tiny drones, they're just too loud. But maybe not. I mean, maybe you have such a, a small enough drone with a, a an image sensor, a, a camera on it that is small enough that it can be super tiny and you can just park four drones with a minimal amount of noise and people just get used to that. And then you have your your whole scene covered. And so I think that could be a really interesting possible future too. I can't remember which movie it was, but there was a movie a few years ago where the CIA had little drones like that that were about bumblebee size mm, uh-huh. and that didn't make a lot of noise. So it's entirely, maybe the CIA already has them. Wait, what's that noise I hear? <laughs> it's funny because just before we started, there, there was a noise of a wood pigeon. I thought it was in my house. And it, I've got windows open upstairs. It was on a ledge outside one of the windows. And that's a little uh-huh. bit creepy. Maybe the CIA sent that wood pigeon. Did um, you look at the eyes? Did you look at the eyes? Was there a little red glow in the middle? I didn't have a chance. It flew, <laughs> it flew away quickly. But it's funny you mentioned drones because the other day we were sitting in our garden and I could hear a buzzing sound. And I said, that's not a bee. That's something flying. And I had to look around a while. It turned out there are some holiday cottages on the other side of the house from our garden. And someone was in front of one of the holiday cottages with a drone. And I could see it was a bright green and they were coming up and then they were going over the field. So it is very loud today. But yes, imagine for weddings, you have drones that are placed in specific areas, constantly shooting, sending the data to, you know, a central server someplace. So it doesn't have to store it on board. And, you know, weddings are a few hours. So you can either have enough batteries or they come and replace the batteries automatically. They'll land and automatically replace the batteries like good drones. Oh, yeah. Well, or you would have like a fleet. Yeah. And so, you know, like, like six of them would go up. And then as their batteries dip, they would just recycle it to go charge and another one would pop in. And yeah. Yeah. And I could see that for that sort of event because they're not obtrusive. Even if there's a little bit of buzzing, it's a lot better than some big burly photographer getting in the way, you know, right in the middle of the aisle <laughs> to get that close up of the first kiss. The, the drone would be a lot more subtle. So I could definitely see that. And in fact, a wedding photographer would be more like a drone choreographer. Mm, yeah. Which, I mean, one of the things that that we're talking about here uh, that we haven't really mentioned is if we have all of these recording options, a lot of what we're talking about is a thing that will just constantly record or you know, record in a different way, then where does that put the photographer in terms of framing and creativity and capturing moments and things like that? Which Ah, but but imagine the camera that I said earlier that takes a picture of all the focal length. The photographer decides the framing afterwards yes. instead of when shooting the picture, which gives the photographer a lot more latitude. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would say that the photographer is still making creative choices in the moment, just has more options later. And that's that's really key because, I mean, obviously we've been able to take pictures using all sorts of, of devices for a long time. But just me standing with my iPhone and, and taking a snap in the back of my garden, yes, that's technically a photo. Is it a good photo? Probably not. And then you have that, that human element that needs to still be in there. 
the photographer's skill comes in the editing phase. And I'm talking about the two forms of editing, the one of individual photos and the one of selecting a group of photos using a wedding as an example, because that's the one where you have a kind of a narrative in photos, mm-hmm. right? So the photographer's yeah. role is to get the different shots and to paste them correctly, as well as, you know, color grading and exposure and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, this is a different photography than the single image, let's say, fine art photography, where the photographer is going to be making other choices, and it's going to be more intentional choices in terms of framing, exposure, etc., potentially even in the darkroom, uh, as opposed to in the digital darkroom. So you're still going to have all these options. I can see in 30 or 40 years, there's going to be nostalgia for old-fashioned digital cameras, right? Oh, old totally. DSLRs, the big bulky ones. I think there's a little bit of that now, even. You have people who are taking their old, uh, you know, early DSLRs or maybe early smartphone cameras and pulling those out and the limitations of resolution and just the you know starkness of being able to register the light has its own kind of look now. And so I can totally see people being like, oh, yes, you know, this... This was a, a Fuji X-T1 from uh, 2020, and uh, it has this particular characteristic long before <laughs> we shot 100 megapixel uh, photos out of our armpits. I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> okay. I think it's time to move on to snapshots. <laughs> I think it probably is time to move on to snapshots. What have you got? As we've mentioned, I'm going to be traveling soon uh, to Europe. and. One of the things that I realized that I need is some sort of power conversion device because, strangely enough, the world doesn't follow the U.S.'s uh, power <laughs> plugs. <laughs> and, yeah, living in the U.S., this never comes up. Uh, and so I did the thing that I often do. I went to the wire cutter and looked at what they recommended. And uh, this is probably overkill, but I wanted to make sure I had some options because I'm going to be in France. I'm going to be in Italy. And so I bought this Epica Universal Travel Adapter, one international wall charger. Well, it's one of those Amazon descriptions. It's basically – Long, long names, yeah. Long, long names. It It's basically like one brick and it has a little slider so you can pop out uh, the EU style of plug or you pop out the UK style of plug or the US style of plug. And what's nice is it also has four USB-A ports for charging and one USB-C port for charging. And so in theory, I'll be able to just plug this into one outlet and from just this one thing, I mean, it's kind of bulky. It's like maybe, you know, two inches square, three inches square. Um, But if I can just use that, to you know, recharge my phone, iPad, watch during the night, um, batteries, camera batteries, all all those sorts of things. Uh, I'll be set. Now, the other option is you can buy like little individual adapters, and I actually bought like an inexpensive set of those too as a just in case. Good idea to have just in case. I'd like you to take a picture of all your camera and 
computing gear before you leave. I'd like to see how much there is. And when you come back, we'll talk about this on an episode because this is something to consider when you're going to another country that you have to have power. You, there aren't many devices you can use without power anymore. Yeah. I mean, you can use a film camera, but that's about it. Why would I use a, 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 a what? A film camera? <laughs> <laughs> Be, because of the nostalgia. All the cool kids are doing it. I know. I know. I know. Which is hilarious because uh, I'm sure we mentioned this at one point. Uh, I, I never did film photography. Yeah. I did a little bit of film photography. So I can't even do nostalgia right <laughs> because <laughs> I, don't have the, I don't have the history with it. So anyway, uh, th this adapter, it's about $23 and we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Kirk, what do you have? In my garden, we have a lot of birds. And, and garden in the UK sense is lawn with plants and bushes and stuff. And it's about the size of three or four tennis courts. So it's fairly large. We have a bunch of bird feeders and we get lots of little birds. A couple of weeks ago, I found an app that's called Merlin Bird Identifier. I'm not sure. We'll put a link in the show notes. And you launch this app on your phone and it listens and it tells you what birds it hears. And it's amazingly accurate. We found that we've got like a couple dozen different kinds of birds. My snapshot is actually something that this prompted me to order, which is coming tomorrow, which is a Canon 10 by 30 image stabilization to binoculars. Oh. We're seeing the birds from a distance, right? We're maybe 10 yards from the feeders we can sit and the birds are pretty chilled about that. They're used to us. But you can't really see them that close. And my partner and I were discussing the other night, we want to see where they're nesting. And, and we've got a big Scots pine tree uh, next to our house, about 60, 70 feet tall. And we've got other trees around the garden, you know, on other people's property. So I wanted to see where they're nesting. Now, the problem is I have a tremor. So with normal binoculars, I can't really see very well. I'd have to put them on a tripod. And I thought, well, there must be image stabilization technology for binoculars. It turns out that Canon was the first to offer this around 1996, and it was initially for sailors, because if you can imagine a ship that's moving, when you have a high magnification binocular, you can't really see very well. So I'm getting this tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to it, because it's not a camera thing, but it's an optical thing. And I think what I'm going to do after that is set up my, what is it, 50 to 140 Fujifilm lens on a camera on a tripod and start taking some bird photos. We'll put a link in the show notes to the episode about bird photos that we did a couple of years ago. That sounds really cool. It's another example of a lot of these technologies like image stabilization that is, it's not just for cameras. It, it can be used in all sorts of other ways. Before we get to our snapshots, we want to talk about the winners from our latest book giveaway. Yes. So uh, in our recent episode with Scott Kelby, we were talking about the travel photography book. We said we would give away two copies. And so I want to say congratulations to listeners Mary Ann D. and Steve D. who will be receiving a free copy of Scott's The Travel Photography Book published by our friends at Rocky Nook. Uh, they were randomly chosen from our photoactive mailing list, which we use to announce new episodes and draw names for occasional giveaways like this one. If you're already subscribed to the list, you're automatically eligible to be in the running. If you're not yet subscribed, go to photoactive.co and sign up at the bottom of any page at the site. So uh, thanks again to Rocky Nook for providing the books and to Scott Kelby for being a guest on episode 118. Are they both members of the same D family? <laughs> they are not members <laughs> of the same D family. <laughs> I figured we should probably, you know, not give full names just for privacy. Totally but, great. Yeah, it was kind of funny. <laughs> Let me just quickly mention one thing. We won't be having an episode in two weeks because, as Jeff has mentioned, he's going to be away traveling. So we'll be back in a month with an episode all about Jeff's vacation. Okay, that's enough for today. Until next time. Until next time. 
Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.